good segue into, into the sermon this morning. Because um, our lives move at breakneck speeds, don't they? You feel that way? We were having dinner as a family last night. We, we went out to dinner to celebrate Emery's birthday. Grandpa's here, and, and so we, we're having this, this moment to do that. And I just felt like the whole thing, the place was busy. Everything was busy, busy, busy. And uh, very little enjoyment when you're moving so fast, right? Well, today we're talking about holidays, moments where we stop. This is for Deuteronomy 16 is our text for the day. If you have a Bible, you can find it. If you're using a pew Bible like I am, um, it's page uh, 159, the second, par- or second uh, column. We're going to talk about 3,000-year-old holidays today. Woo! <laughs> In fact, that might be the weirdest thing that you do this week. When your friends at work say, hey, what'd you do this weekend? And they're like, oh, well, I went fishing. Oh, I played, you know, played some, some watched a ball game. I, I played and watched a ball game, whatever it is that you sports people do. You can be like, oh, well, I went to church and we talked about 3,000-year-old holidays. And okay. We have holidays, though, holidays that we celebrate. I have maintained that I think one of the best ways to tell about a culture, the best ways to come to understand a culture is to ask the question, what sorts of things do they celebrate? Where do they stop and meditate? So I did some quick research, just curious about American culture and, uh, and what the big holidays in American culture would be. What, if, what I discovered was fascinating. Uh, the first thing is, how do we determine what are the biggest holidays? Consumer spending. What an interesting comment. We just stop there and talk about culture that we live in and, and how that, what does that mean? But, but let's just go through this. I've got the first seven the first seven holidays, and all of God's people said the biggest holiday is Christmas. Oh, Halloween. <laughs> it's on the list. <laughs> biggest holiday is, is Christmas still to this day. It's very interesting. In fact, there's only 240 days left until Christmas, if you're keeping count. We are. I was playing Christmas music this week, actually. Christmas. Second biggest holiday, what do you think? Thanksgiving, Valentine's Day. Ah, who said it? Mother's Day. Mother's Day, second biggest holiday. So uh, I don't know how many days there are until Mother's Day. That's coming up, though, isn't it? Two weeks. Y'all do me a favor. I've told this story, haven't I, about the first Mother's Day, and I forgot it because in Laura's, in my mind, Laura wasn't a, like my mom is my. Don't forget Mother's Day if you. Our Mary, don't forget Mother's Day. She's a mom. All right. Second, third biggest day. Easter. No, good guess. Keep that, keep that in your heart, little one. Yes. Easter. Easter is the biggest holiday. And it's important, I think, I think it's important. This is a, a cultural and religious critique at the same time. I think it's important we use the word Easter and not Resurrection Sunday. Because those two things are a little bit different. Fourth biggest holiday, what do you think? Father's Day, Emery is correct. Whoops. I read my list wrong. Valentine's Day, you were incorrect. Fifth biggest day is Father's Day. I also usually forget Valentine's Day. So anytime Valentine's Day is coming up, you know, do your best to say, Jordan, you're married. Don't forget this. All right. The next biggest holiday is... Who said, what, what do we have? 
Thanksgiving? Halloween. Now, this doesn't surprise me. Halloween's kind of expanded, uh, as you noted. It's gotten bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, what was really interesting to me, though, is the seventh holiday, because I never would have called it a holiday, but it was actually marked, because, again, consumer spending, right? Can you guess? What'd you say? Super Bowl Sunday. Super Bowl Sunday. Super Bowl Sunday. It beat out Independence Day. I was for sure that the 4th of July is going to make the... And actually, the 4th of July is the, is, the, uh, is the eighth biggest holiday, but I was really surprised that I, I would never have thought of that. It's interesting to me, um, all of this is interesting culturally because I think culture is one of those things in your daily life and my daily life that we rarely analyze. We rarely ask questions about the meaning of the world, how we fit into the world, and how we live out. How do those things, our vision, our worldview, and then our identity in that world, how does that play out in our, in our daily practices, in our daily lives? And that's really, that's really what we've been, we've been, we've been hammering. You know, where, what does this tell us? What, do this, what does this list tell us about American culture in terms of worldview and identity and practice? There's a whole, there's a whole um, TED Talk in there somewhere if anybody wants to try to get, get internet famous. Um, but all of this matters. Time matters. Time is a very important thing. In fact, all of these things, turn around, you can kind of see them, all these Sticky notes, I was perusing them, thinking about it. All of these sticky notes here represent, if you were here that Sunday anyway, who you are, how you identify yourself. And as I was looking at them, I noticed all of them take a great deal of time. Who we are is, is tied intricately to this. And who God's people are is intricately tied to that as well. And so if you're looking at Deuteronomy 16, what we have within this passage is the days in which Israel is to come to a full stop and to observe something. It's their holidays. And, and, there's, and there's, a, a long, there's three especially. I'm going to give them to you here, kind of a big picture view panoramic view of chapter 16. And what you have here is the three, three of the major holidays. There's five total. Leviticus gives us the full list, but, but Deuteronomy only reiterates three. And here they are. The first one is Passover. This is the Independence Day of the people. We've talked about this day probably every Sunday since we began the series because every time you talk about Israel, you have to talk about how God freed them from Egypt and brought them into the wilderness and to himself. And every year they are to gather together and for a week, seven days, everything stops. And they remember where God brought them, how God has rescued them, how God has provided for them. The second holiday, verses 9 through 12, you have that there is called the Feast of Weeks, also known as Pentecost. That might sound familiar to some of you. Um, who have uh, read your New Testament, this is actually tied to the first harvest of the year, the early summer harvest, when the first fruits are kind of coming out. The third is called the Feast of Booths. We might call it tents or camping. I'm going to call it the Feast of Camping, which doesn't sound exciting, I know. It was a joke, but also serious. Uh, this is tied to the late harvest. So as the, harvest, the final harvest is brought in, you bring in your, your tithes and your offerings from that harvest, and you gather to, or the people would gather together, and they would remember uh, the wilderness. 
They would leave their homes. Their, they, they wouldn't even use uh, Motel 6s. Like they weren't not even a slum at that far. You have to bring your tent and you build it right there. And you remember how God had preserved them and protected them through the wilderness. And again, this is also tied to their, to their agricultures. They, they're bringing in that, that, that last harvest. So that's a summary. That's a summary of this, this text. And I realize that, again, like I said last week, there's two kinds of people in the world, those who like NPR and those who don't. Um, those of you who are like, turn up the radio, I'm tired of the news. And this is kind of a Bible nerd thing, you know. If you were reading the Bible, and this happened to me oftentimes where, you know, you meet somebody who's really excited about God. And they, they're like, I'm, you know, I'm really going to get into this. I'm going to read the Bible cover to cover. And if you make it to Deuteronomy, I mean, right, because it's rough. Because what happens is as we're reading this, if you haven't already fallen asleep, we're like, what in the world? I, these have nothing to do with me because Christians don't practice them. You don't practice them. You've probably never seen anyone practice them. Maybe you've been to a Seder dinner or something like that, but that's barely reminiscent of what was actually going on in the Old Testament. But that's because we're hanging out here. And I'm asking you to dig deeper and to realize that those practices, which seem sort of like just kind of not applicable, have a lot to say about what God is trying to do who he is trying to form, and how he is trying to form them, how he is trying to shape a people. Because while we will not probably practice, if you want to go you know, camping, that's fine, um, but we probably won't practice these, God is still after the same kind of thing. He is still forming a people. So what I want to talk about today is not so much just what is being done, but rather what is this saying about the people God is trying to build. That makes sense? You with me? So these are very important. And I think what is very important about these major holidays is this, that they have a lot to say about time and labor. And almost for all of us, aside from sleeping and eating, the majority of your time is right there, isn't it, in labor. What you do during the week. What you do with those 40 hours, 50 hours, 60 hours, 70 hours, whatever it is. There is a deep relationship that we have to time and to labor. And we see that within these holidays, right? This is, this is harvest holidays. This is 400 years, right? That's what the Passover was, remembering the 400. I mean, there's a great deal of time. And this is all tied to labor, right? Because there were slaves laboring there. And all of that is, is happening there. We do the same thing. When you meet somebody and you're, and you're first like opening conversations with somebody, you ask, hey, what's your name? Do you have kids? Eventually you get to this question, what do you do? Right? What do you do? Why do we ask that question? Is it, is it because you're really that interested in, in you know, what, what somebody sells? Or we, We're asking really a, a much deeper question, aren't we? We're asking, who are you? But if you say to somebody in your first conversation, tell me who you are, they're going to say, I'm leaving this conversation, right? Because you're a freak and you're scaring me. We don't start there because that's not a part of our culture. We don't ask deep questions like that. We ask questions that kind of get at those deeper questions. Who are you? Not who are you, but, you know, what do you do? What do you do really gets at that, though, because if I know something about the 40 hours you spend during the week, I have something I can begin to talk to you about. Whether you're a stay-at-home mom or you're a CEO, it doesn't matter. These are, these are things that you're in, in, investing your time in. They're important things. They shape you. You ever thought about how much the time that you spend at work shapes you? The language 
of the workplace and how it shapes you, the language of the people around that workplace and how it shapes you, how it identifies you, the kind of meaning that it gives to your life. And I think that one of the things about, about it is that it shapes us more than we have any, any idea. So put yourself in the ancient Jews' shoes for a moment, especially in Deuteronomy, and they're going to celebrate the Feast of Passover. Passover reminds them of how they were slaves in Egypt. They were slaves in Egypt for how many years, kids? Somebody said five. 400, right? 400 years. 400 years you're enslaved. You can imagine what they, their culture would have been. What would their work culture have been? Productivity, speed, efficiency. Productivity, speed, efficiency. How fast can you make the bricks? How many more bricks can you make? How many more bricks can you lay? Can you do it faster? Can you do it faster? Can you do it faster? Can you produce more? Can you be more efficient at it so we can build these buildings quicker and with less expense? You can imagine that was the taskmaster's whip on their back every day. Speed, productivity, efficiency. Speed, productivity, efficiency. Make more. Sell more, build more, faster, faster, faster. Do any of you feel like you're at work? That sounds very similar to America. How might that productivity have shaped their imaginations? How might it have shaped their priorities? How might it have have shaped the way that they might eventually even resist God? Because if productivity and speed and efficiency are the key markers of success, take away the word success, let's say of the good, what about those people who don't produce enough? Those people who aren't smart enough or who aren't talented enough or weren't gifted enough? What about those people who are um, struggling. There's all kinds of ways in which that productivity would have changed the way that you, you would begin to view people as what they can do. And what they can do for you. You ever met anybody that views the world like that? It could mean that productivity becomes a way in which you resist the gift of God because we replace the language of gift with the language of productivity. And those are two different, aren't they? You give a gift, you receive a gift. You work, you invest, you receive on the work and investment. Those are different. Aren't they different? God lives in the language of gift. The gift of grace. The free gift of grace. You seem to have heard that before, right? I mean, you've heard that before? Yes? I feel these things infecting me. Speed especially. Um, Speed especially. I get mad uh, when things don't go fast enough. Can I get a witness? If I'm in the drive-thru or with the internet or with my children... Speed matters. And I don't want those three things to be lumped into the same category. 
I don't, I don't want to be that way with my children because I realize that one-year-olds, they just they move at their own pace and there's just nothing you're going to do about that, you know? Uh, uh, diaper explosions happen and there's just, that's, that's the end of it and, and, you, and everything comes to a full stop, right? But you get frustrated. Do you get frustrated? Am I speaking to you in any kind of way? Like the, I realize... I was thinking about it this week. I realized how much the, the, the drive for speed and for things to be done quickly and efficiently begins to infect all of these other areas of my life. So how is it not going to affect my family or my church or my faith or those people who are not producing enough? These things infect all of us. Well... In the scriptures, I want to read this, this section. This is, the, this is the, third, the third holiday, verses 9 through 12. You shall count seven weeks. Begin to count the seven weeks from the time the sickle is first put to the standing grain. And then you shall keep the feast of weeks to the Lord your God with a tribute of a free will offering from your hand, which you shall give... As the Lord your God blesses you, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your son and your daughter and your male, your male servant and your female servant and the Levite or the, the priest who is within your towns and the sojourner, the fatherless, the widow, those who are among you. So every single person, we've tried to hit all the categories of people, everyone. It doesn't matter whether you're traveling, just stopping by, or whether or not you've been there your whole life. Whoever is in Israel must do this. The fatherless, the widow, who are among you, at the place the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there. You shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt. You shall be careful to observe these statutes. Full stop for a week. Now, I don't know much, and we've talked about this before, but I don't know much about farming. But I do know that Summer is the busy time of year. And what has God just said in this text? He has said, it's the beginning of the summer. You have had the first harvest. Now I want you to take a week off. That doesn't seem smart, does it? In fact, God doesn't just say, I want you to take a week off. But he says, I want you to leave the lands that you have been cultivating. And I want you to travel all the way over to this other place and to worship together there. Well, not only is there work to be done, but the land now has been left. What can happen with the land wide open? Anything. Anything can happen while the land is wide. You're not there anymore. Does anybody feel paranoid when you're not at work? Think about it. Wonder how things are going. Maybe you feel the same thing about your home or your children. We have this sense, the same kind of sense. like you To leave something and to not be watching over it is to risk it, isn't it? is to put it in someone else's hands. And God is encouraging the people. In fact, he's commanding the people, listen, what I want you to do is I want you to abandon your land for a whole week during the time when you should be weeding and watering. And I want you to leave it and I want you to go and I want you to celebrate. We went through a list as we started of, of what? Holiday. Days, right? It's a holiday. They've got a whole week. How many, how many days do you get off for Christmas? One, one and a half? Do you get two? Anybody get two? Two days? Two days? 
Sometimes they make it a long weekend. It makes you feel good. Like, oh, I got four days off, except for two of them are already yours. Like, thanks for the gift, right? God says, I want everything in Israel to stop for seven days. Imagine that. No work, no washing. Well, that's too easy. Don't imagine that. No um, stock markets, no Walmarts, no McDonald's corrupting our souls. Everything is stopped for a whole week so that the people could remember. What would that take? It would take a tremendous amount of faith, a tremendous amount of trust that God is going to protect and to uplift and to walk with his people, that he is the provider. And isn't that the fundamental question? And this is, if we're talking about worldview and identity, what is he trying to tell the people? He's telling them, you were not in control when you were in Egypt. And you're not in control when you're in the land of the first harvest. And you're not in control when you have the second harvest, the last harvest. You are not in control. Because one of the problems that's going to happen as the people find success, and I see this very often in people who find success, is that they may continue to go to church They may continue to give lip service to God, but God becomes more and more distant because they become more and more convinced that they did it on their own. And God is reminding the people in week-long celebrations, you didn't. And he's also reminding them in week-long celebrations to what? Celebrate! God has given you this good gift. God gave you this day. God gave you this life. God gave you this food. God gave you this family. God gave you these neighbors. God gave you this covenant. God gave you this salvation. God gave you all of this. And what should you do with it? You should be happy. Can I give you a command this morning? Be happy. Be joyful. You have so much. And God has given it all to you. And he hasn't given it to you to hoard And he hasn't given it to you to worry over. I seem to remember somebody who said something like that. Who taught us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. Who said to us, do not be anxious about anything. Because you can't make one hair white or black. So why are you worrying about what you can eat and what you can drink and what you can wear. When God knows you need these things. Before you even ask for these things seems to me that one of the things that God is trying to build into these people is a sense, is a sense that they are not in control. And that's actually kind of a good thing. It's actually kind of a good thing. Because it puts it in somebody's hands who is in control. So what does this do for us? Speed past some things here. Nope. Nope. All right. Good. This is like an old one. I put the wrong one on. Okay. Good. There we got there. It took a while, but we got there. One of the things that I think this does for us, as we think about how this operates within the New Testament, we are not, as I said, and this is one of those problems that we wrestle with because. We are not practicing the Feast of Booze. We're not practicing Passover. We're not practicing Pentecost in the way the ancient Israelites did. 
And so when you're reading Deuteronomy 16, I can understand why you would say, well, this has nothing, uh, nothing to say to me in terms of the practices, but I think it does. I think it has a lot to say about identity, and I think it has a lot to say about worldview, and I think it has a lot to say about our actual practice, and I would say it begins with this. You need to stop. Stop. Stop running around, stop racing around, stop worrying, stop fretting, stop doing, stop being productive, stop. Isn't it interesting that God made you in such a way that half of your life, you are nothing but a lump on a bed? Why did God make us so that we're lumps on a bed? Why did he make us so we needed that? I mean, God's God. He could make us like far more productive. God could have made us far more productive, right? And yet, he didn't. Oh, man, I put the wrong one up. God did not make you for work. He made work for you. You were not made for work. You were not made to be a laborer. In fact, there's a, that was the way the ancients believed. that God, They believed the gods needed someone to, to, to farm the field so that they could offer sacrifices so the god could eat. That's why humans exist. Humans existed in the ancient mind for work. And the Bible tells a completely different story. You are not what you produce. You are not what you produce. You are made for God. And God loves you whether you produce this much or nothing at all. I'm not inviting laziness. Some of you are ready to amen and go take a nap right now. (laughs) And some of you really need to say amen and take a nap right now because there's a balance, isn't there? God gave us a world to tend. He gave us creativity to work. He gave us inspiration and motivation. He gave us drive to to produce things that are beautiful and true and good. But the problem with sin is what it does is it disorients all of the good. And as it disorients the good, it makes the good evil. And what the task of the Christian in light of Jesus Christ is to do is to take that which the world has made evil and to, to, to rescue it and bring it back to the good that God had in mind. And one of the things, one of the idols of our world is production. And one of the ways in which the Christian can resist that is to take a nap. There's a reason why God built the sixth day as a day of rest. That's what Sabbath meant. And that was, as you know, the the story of the, the Jews. In fact, today, Jews still participate in a day of rest. And then we had something new that happened in the New Testament. On the seventh day, Christ arose. And that became the day on which Christians rested. Became their Sabbath, as a world. We call it the Lord's Day. In fact, the tradition early on became to call this the seventh day of creation. It was the day when creation began again. Began anew. And one of the fundamental things we see in all of the holidays that we saw there was the idea of celebration. And so one of the things and ways in which we as Christians can resist the corruptions we see in culture and begin to live into the grace of God is to stop. 
to take the day and to remember who God is, to celebrate with one another the grace and salvation that God has given to us. Because again, God did not make you for work. God made work for us. The last thing I would ask us just to kind of consider, and maybe you want to do a little internet research. I think this would be interesting. This is something that I have personally been passionate about, and I don't talk about it a ton, um, but it is the Christian calendar. I think I have a copy of it. Yes, wonderful, the Christian calendar. Uh, Most of our calendars look like this. How boring and terrible a calendar. Isn't that a boring, terrible calendar? It's so sad. And there's only one day, they're they're like these single days, where is it at? Oh, there it is. That's just one day. That's it. That's the only day. Rather than whole weeks. Rather than whole weeks of celebration. Anyway, one of the early practices of the church was that they did not reduplicate the Jewish calendar. We did not continue to do the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Booths, all these different things. But instead, um, what became uh, is the Christian calendar, which follows the story of Jesus here and this is what we call ordinary time. So that's the story of the people of God. This, this runs through kind of the... We're just going to be starting ordinary time here soon. This runs through the summer months. But you can see how it tracks the story of Jesus. Advent and Christmas, the season of Epiphany, the season of Lent and Easter, and then, and then the season of Pentecost in which God gives the Holy Spirit to, to his people. By reorienting our, our sense of time, we begin to resist the ways in which our calendars are driven. How many of you are driven by the calendar? All of us. I'm driven by the calendar, and now Google alerts me every time I am not being driven by my calendar to say, hey, you were supposed to be there 10 minutes ago. Right? We, we have this, this drive always, 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 and it is very difficult for us to resist that because we don't live in a Christian culture. We live in a, in a secular culture. And two of the ways in which we can begin to push back is to say, you know what? This day is a day of worship and family. This is a day for, for the Lord. There's a, a, in, in the text that we, re- we didn't read, it, it's verse 16 of the chapter, in which, um, in which God commands that when the people come to him, they are not to come empty-handed. Do not show up to God empty-handed. Because, indeed, these are called sacrifices. And if you're showing up to God empty-handed, if there's no sacrifice involved, well, perhaps it didn't cost you anything. If it doesn't cost you anything, is it really worth anything? In fact, there's this great little story uh, in the Old Testament in chapter 24 of the second book of Samuel in which David wants to sacrifice to the Lord. And so he goes to the field and he says to the guy who owns the field, listen, let me buy the field and let me buy the oxen and we're going to sacrifice. We're going to have a worship service right here. And the man says, listen, you know, you're the king. I'm a loyal subject. Take what you want. Take what you want. And David says, no, no. I will not sacrifice anything to the Lord that has cost me nothing. And so there's sort of this dual, almost in opposition, um, call today. The one hand is to sacrifice to God, to give to God. And the other is to do it by not working. (laughs) But these things are together in their, their belief. That God is a giver of gifts and that God enjoys it and the way that we worship God best is when we give the gifts back so that there is a reciprocity of relationship 
between us and between God so that the giver receives the gift back to give again, back and forth. We do this in marriages. We do this with children. We do this in relationships. You come and to my house and I go to your house and all of these things. We, we do this all the time. We do this with God as well. And so my encouragement for you today is to begin thinking about your relationship between labor and time, your relationship between time and labor, and to give to God what is God's. Let's stand and sing praises to him.